Hey, good morning, everybody. Hey, welcome back from your Thanksgiving festivities. It's great to have you here this morning, everybody. I just need to share one uh, thing real quick that just warms my heart this morning. I happen to be sitting outside of the refuge room uh, 10 minutes ago, and they were either having a riot in there or a really good time. There's just like there's like a hundred kids in there going totally bananas. It just makes me really really happy. So thank you everyone that serves in uh, Faith Kids. It's just I, I just love uh, what's happening there. Well, it's great to be together again, continuing our teaching series this morning. We, I think you've already heard, you've seen the tank. We have baptisms happening this morning. That just makes it an extra special morning to be gathered together like this. We have five people being baptized. Uh, one woman in this service, Jessica Heslink, is being baptized in this service. And then we have four being baptized in the next service if you want to stick around to watch those. But if you're one of uh, Jessica's family or friends, a special welcome to you and anyone else that's joining us for the first time today. We're just really honored to be spending this morning with you. Well, uh, true story before we jump into our scripture reading this morning. I woke up yesterday morning, and I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but for just a half second, I really thought it was like 2010 or 2012. Has that ever happened to anybody else? Ever. Just for, just not even a whole second, just for a half a second, but the, the longing stayed with me all day. I really thought we were back in our little apartment in River Falls, and I was young and fit, and I had all my hair, <laughs> and Caleb, our oldest, was just a tyke. All this happened in a half second, okay? And I really thought, it's happened. I've gone back in time. It's something I've always wanted to do. I, but I really thought, it's finally happened, and it's 2010, it's 2012 or something like that, and I get to redo the last 10 years or so. Does anyone ever want to do that? Okay. I asked my wife, well, told Darcy about this yesterday, and I said, you know, I just want to know if I'm talking to like 3% of the population or 50 I said, so Darcy, you ever, you ever like just pray, God, let me wake up, and it's eighth grade again or something like that? She said, no. She said, Tim, I believe in the providence of God, and I, I don't need to go back. But the, the, the longing for me, again, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, is just the opportunity to go back and change some things. For me, it mostly, honestly, you know, so for, for the record, I would marry Darcy again, so we're all on the same page, okay? <laughs> I would marry Darcy, I would have the same kids, you know, and all that kind of thing. Uh, but attitudes that I had, Things I thought were true that I now know were just not true. Decisions that I made. I once blew our life savings on a get-rich-quick scheme. I'll tell you all about that sometime. <laughs> I would bet big on the Cubs in 2016. Just like Back to the Future, you know, I'd make a million bucks betting because I, I would know everything that I know now, right? Uh, and I think that I'm probably not completely alone. That if you could, there are some things maybe that you would go back. Attitudes you had decisions you made, the way you looked at the world, if you could go back, you would change it. I have prayed sincerely and regularly and recently that I would wake up in eighth grade again. I trace all the flaws in my character to eighth grade. Uh, that's when my attitude was lousiest in life and all my problems really began. Uh, God has not granted that request. I do not believe that he will. 
Because once again, this is, this is completely contrary to everything I've been teaching you all fall about the providence of God. I'm just saying it happens. And it happened to me yesterday, so I'm, gonna, I'm sharing it with you. This morning in our series, The Destiny, we're continuing to look at the story of a character named Jacob who is coming to the end of his life and he has a lot to teach us about living our lives with intentionality and clarity and purpose so that you do not get to the end of your life and say, I wasted it. If I could spare you that, I would. And if I could spare myself that, I would. So before our reading, just three things you need to know about Jacob, especially if this is your first time with us in a while, maybe three things you need to know about Jacob. First of all, before Jacob was even born, God had promised to bless him and make him great and making, make him a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Second thing you need to know is that Jacob just never managed to wrap his head around that. And he struggled to believe God. His life was marked by fight after fight after fight. He wrestled with his brother. He wrestled with his dad. He wrestled with his uncle, his wives, his children. And he left a trail of damaged relationships in his wake. This is a, a trait, unfortunately, that he also passed along to his children. So third thing that we've been reading about this fall is how God providentially redeemed all of this for his own purposes. So, so far we've seen God redeemed Joseph's suffering in slavery and prison. He's redeemed his brother's sin of selling Joseph into slavery. And in the, in the last few weeks, in the next few weeks, we're seeing, we're watching as God redeems Jacob's unbelief and his lack of faith. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week. If you want to turn there with me in Genesis chapter 46, verse 28. That's going to be on page 40 if you want to follow along in a Bible from under the chairs in front of you. Genesis 46, verse 28. After more than 20 years, Jacob has just learned that his son Joseph is alive beyond all hope and that God has raised him up to rule over all of Egypt. And it's through Joseph that God is saving the world from famine. So Joseph uh, is a great picture of Jesus, who is also a descendant of Jacob coming many generations later. So here we are in uh, chapter 46, verse 28. Jacob had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They're now in the land of Goshen. 
And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land for there is no pasture for our servants' flocks for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen, and if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of, your, of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are a hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Verses 29 and 30, if you want to look at them real quick, are another emotional climax in the story of Genesis. And maybe this is making mountains out of molehills. That's entirely possible. But just an observation that Joseph himself hitches up his chariot and rides north to meet his father. He doesn't delegate the task to a servant or anything. Joseph is eager to go and see his dad as quickly as he can. And I just mentioned that because we've, meant, we, you know, we've observed several times this fall that Joseph kept himself hidden from his family for a long time. And he also did not go north until this moment right now. And what these verses make clear is that that is not because there was a lack of desire or of love for his family. When Joseph first saw his brothers and heard them confess what they had done to him, he wept. And the first time that he saw his brother Benjamin, he wept. And now when he sees his dad, it says that he fell on his neck and they had a good, long cry. Joseph never stopped loving his family. He never stopped hoping for his family and he never stopped longing for them. So whatever kept Joseph from going up to see them, it wasn't that. Joseph recognized that God needed to do some things in his family that only God could do. And he chose to trust God's timing. And that is one of the hardest things to do. To wait on the Lord with those that we love. And there's an important lesson in here for all of us who are waiting on the Lord to do something in people that we love. Joseph trusted God's timing. He trusted in the providence of God. And we can too. Now, the next thing is harder to see in English, but it's actually kind of the key to what the author wants us to hear here. And it's this phrase, he presented himself. That phrase, he presented himself, is only used in the book of Genesis to describe a theophany. Isn't that a fun word? Let's all say that together this morning. Theophany. A theophany is what we call it when God appears to someone 
in a visible or tangible way. Theophany is what happens when God kind of pulls the curtain back a little bit and allows someone a peek into what is really going on behind the scenes. Now, not every character in the Bible gets those. Joseph apparently didn't need that. But it's a theme in Jacob's life. Several times in Jacob's life, it says, God appeared to Jacob. It's exactly the same phrase that's used here. But this is the only time in Genesis that a human being presents himself or appears in this way. Remember the last time that Jacob saw his boy. Joseph was 17 years old, wearing that super cool coat that his dad gave him. And I just imagine him, you know, as he passes over the top of a hill, turning back and waving at dad. And I just wonder how many times Jacob replayed that scene over and over again the last time he saw his boy. Over and over again. And for Jacob, what's happening here is is like a theophany. It's like a parting of the skies almost. Here's his son, alive and grown to full manhood and clothed with power and glory and all the symbols of his new station in life. For Jacob, I think the point here is that it, it, it was like seeing everything from God's perspective suddenly. This is one of those moments, and maybe you've had these in your life, where God's eternal perspective kind of breaks in and you can finally see the big picture. And everything that God was doing all of those years that Jacob was walking in unbelief and faithlessness. God was always leading everything to this point right here. And it changes Jacob. He says to his son, I have seen your face. I've seen your face and I know that you're alive. Now let me die. Let me die since I've seen your face. That is an, it's not a morbid moment. Actually, what's happening is Jacob is expressing a profound sense of peace. Finally. Jacob the fighter is finally experiencing peace. After his separation from Joseph, way back in chapter 37, Almost every time that Jacob speaks, he talks about his death. You go back and read it this week. Almost every time Jacob opens his mouth, he is talking about his death or the death of his children. For Jacob's death is this empty uh, enemy to be avoided. It held nothing but gloom and despair for Jacob. He says in chapter 37, I'm going to go to the grave in sorrow, mourning for my son. And what a change in verse 30. I'm ready to die, he says, because I've seen your face. There's another story like this in the New Testament that sheds a lot of light on this, by the way. We read it around Christmas time. It's a story of a man named Simeon who's in the temple when Jesus is brought in to be dedicated by his parents. And Simeon sees the boy and the Spirit of God speaks to Simeon and he says, Now at last, I'm ready to die. 
for I've seen the salvation of Israel and I'm ready to go. That's what's going on with Jacob. He's, he's look, he sees his boy and he says, I'm ready. Everything has fallen into place for me and he's at peace. Just real quick before we go on. Could you say the same thing this morning? Are, are you ready today to die? Could you face it with peace or is there a lot of unfinished business in your life? Now, that's not the whole story, is it? So if we look down the page and go down to verse 9, we see that's not everything that's going on in Jacob. Now, verses 31 through verse 6 uh, are there to let us know how Israel came to be settled in the land of Goshen, and that's all described there, and their relationship with the Egyptians, what it was like, and how Israel managed to be a distinct people for so long. That doesn't normally happen. Usually immigrant communities are much more assimilated than Israel ever became. And this just is there to explain how Israel was preserved by God as a distinct people. For the sake of time, we're just going to talk about Jacob today, okay? So if you just go down to verse 7, look at what happens when Jacob meets Pharaoh. Verse 7, Joseph brought Jacob his father in and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, now think of all the questions you would want to ask in an interview, you know. With, okay, how old are you? That's Pharaoh's question. How old are you? And Jacob says, I'm 130. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and I've not yet attained the, to the days of the years of the life of my fathers. In verse 10, it says, Jacob blessed Pharaoh again. And then he left him. There's this, this amazing juxtaposition between these two men, and we're meant to see it because this is the story of God's people among the nations of the world, okay? On the one hand, you have Pharaoh, the most powerful person in that part of the world and about to get much, much more powerful, by the way, through the administration of Joseph. He is rich. He's established. He's about to get much richer. He lives in a palace. He commands armies. His word is law. He enjoys tremendous, you know, security in life. And then you have Jacob, who has none of that stuff. Jacob's a nomadic shepherd. He's never really known a home in the proper sense of that word. The only land his family owns is a little burial plot up in Canaan. He has virtually no political or military power. Now he's a famine refugee. He's wealthy by Canaan standards, but in Egypt he's not that impressive. He's not that big a deal. In fact, we learn in what we read, these people really look down on the Hebrews. And yet, Jacob is the one doing the blessing in the story. He does it twice which we talked about in this fall. He does it twice. Blessing is supposed to move from the king to the subject. Blessing is supposed to move from the person in charge to the dependent. And yet two times we read Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's question is really interesting too. How, the first thing he wants to know, hey, how old are you? Why does he do that? Well, remember, you know, if anyone went to middle school, you know this. Egyptians are, were obsessed with death and immortality. 
obsessed with death and immortality. If you, you know, the, the pyramids and the sphinx and their embalming practices and their elaborate treasure hoards that they were buried with uh, make it very clear that they, they wanted to live forever. And the assumption throughout the ancient Near East, okay, so this is not just Egypt, but everywhere you would have gone uh, in the biblical world, the assumption is that a long life was a clear sign of the blessing of the gods. If you could achieve a certain age, I mean, the gods must love you, was the assumption. So we have actually in, in a very old Egyptian document, a papyrus. It's about 3,600 years old. You can go Google all this stuff. It's on display in Berlin. It's called the West Car Papyrus. And it indicates that some Exceptional individuals, especially among Egypt's elite, did reach just obnoxiously uh, old ages. But it also tells us that in Egypt at this time, so this is contemporary with the life of Joseph, in Egypt at this time, they considered 110 years old to be like the ideal age. If you could hit 110 and you were an Egyptian, your life has been kissed by the gods. I mean, they, they love you. You're immortal, divine, set apart. I mean, something special about you. And that explains a lot about this interaction. Here's a king of Egypt who wants nothing more than to live forever. And his first question is, hey, how old are you? And Jacob comes back with an astounding 130 now, for us, that's an anomaly. You know, we put him in Ripley's Believe It or Not or donate him to Johns Hopkins for research or something like that. But for Pharaoh, there are theological implications here. And Pharaoh recognizes this is a guy whose life has been touched by the gods. Like there's something really special about him. He's obviously highly favored. And, and that is the point. You can have... Everything this world has to offer. But without God, what is the point? And on the other hand, if you're just a pilgrim, that's Jacob's word, I'm just a pilgrim, and you have nothing that the world values, but you have God, then you have everything. And both men recognize this is what's interesting. Both men recognize that between the two of them, Jacob is the greater man. And he blesses Pharaoh twice. What has Jacob been after his whole life? He wants to be great. He wants to be blessed. And here he is in the presence of of the greatest man in the world, and he's finally putting it together. I am great. I have the one thing that everyone in the world wants, and I've had it the whole time. And it is all by grace. And all my fighting, all my wrestling, all my lying, all my cheating, has been a waste. I've had the one thing that everybody wants this whole time and lived like it wasn't true. So the New Testament, reflecting on the life of Jacob, 
The New Testament sums it up this way. Romans chapter 9 verse 16. Therefore salvation does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Salvation does not depend on your will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Another way that we say that around here is Jacob brought nothing to the table except the sin and foolishness from which he needed to be redeemed and saved in the first place. All of his fighting, all of his wrestling is for nothing. Salvation belongs to the Lord and it's all grace. Those of you being baptized today, Jessica and the four others who are coming, when people get in the tank, we ask them. We've asked you, okay? This, is, this was your baptismal confession. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sin and the hope of eternal life? It's just a shorter way of saying, do you understand that you bring nothing to the table today but the sin from which you desperately need to be saved? And do you understand that salvation belongs to the Lord and he has done everything to bring you to this place today and that in him you have all you need. That's just, we shortened it, okay? That has been the struggle of Jacob's life. It is the struggle of the Christian life to trust in the mercy and the promises of God. Not in my own ability to fix myself or fix my situation but the mercy of God. How, how different would Jacob's story have been if he would just have believed God a hundred years earlier? Jacob has this moment when Joseph appears and he can, you know, he can finally see what God has been doing and he's at peace and then in blessing Pharaoh, I think he's recognizing his true place and all that he's longed for has been there the whole time. And at the same time, this is his reflection on his life in verse 9. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. That sounds like a weary person to me. Few and evil have been the days of my life. This sounds like a man coming to the end of his life who is seeing all that he lacked the faith to see earlier and he is full of sorrow. He's saying, I, I, I have fought and fought my whole life to find something in this world that I was only going to find in God and I have wasted it. Few and evil have been the days of my sojourning. If I could just speak to 8th graders and ninth graders and high schoolers really quickly, if I could just have your attention very quickly. No one has ever in the history of the world except extreme fools and evil people. No one has ever gotten to the end of their life and said, I wish I would have waited a little longer to believe God. That has never, never, everyone say never, happened ever 
This is the sorrowful reflection of a person who wishes he had believed God in eighth grade. Now this sorrow in verse 9, by the way, it's not incompatible with that sense of peace we read about in verse 30. It's not incompatible with 2 Corinthians 7.10 we talked about a few weeks ago when we were talking about repentance. Godly sorrow leads to repentance without regret. This is not incompatible with that. There is a godly sorrow that looks back on its own life and soberly acknowledges I know this isn't the whole story. I thank God that he's working all things together for good, but I am sorry that I did not listen sooner. I am sorry I didn't trust sooner, and I've done evil, and I wish that I hadn't. This sorrow is not incompatible with peace and hope, but this is a sobering truth that it is possible to belong to God by grace alone and waste your life not resting in grace alone. And I would spare you that if I could. I want to spare myself that if I can. So I just want to remind you that every day is the right day to say yes to Jesus. Every day is the right day to say yes to Jesus. 130 is not too old. And five or eighth grade or whatever is never too young. To lay your life down at the feet of Jesus and say, here here I am again, Lord. I'm offering my life to you such as it is. I may only have a week. I may have 100 years in front of me, but here is my life. I'm asking you to help me not to waste it in unbelief. I want to get old and look back on my life and say, I trusted the Lord and walked with him. You may be here this morning, you say, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I'm up against. You don't know how hard it is. You don't know how many times I've done that again and again and again. I know more about it than you think. And this is repentance. This is exactly what we talked about a few weeks ago. To know that in truth, we cannot do what God has called us to do. And so we come again and again. Need is all you need. So come. And Jesus has promised never to cast out those who come. So come. A day is coming, Jesus said, when he will appear just as Joseph did to Jacob. Jesus died in shame and humiliation. He was raised in power and glory, and he has promised he is coming. And we talked about this last week. God always, always, always does what he said he will do. You can bank your life on it. You had better bank your life on that. This is Matthew chapter 25. Just a few examples. Matthew 25, 31. This is Jesus speaking. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Here's another from Luke 17. 
For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other, so it will be when the Son of Man comes in his day. Revelation 22:12. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And he adds, Revelation 22, 4, we will see his face. We will see his face. And there's just going to be an awful lot on that day that does not matter. This is one of my favorite passages by C.S. Lewis. He describes this moment this way. He says, In the end, that face which is the delight or terror of the universe must be turned upon each one of us, either with one expression or the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. It is written, We shall stand before him, We shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive the examination, shall find approval, and shall please God. To please God, he says. To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in. As an artist delights in in his word or a father and a son, it seems impossible. But so it is. So it is. And it is so because God has said he's coming. And he always keeps his word. Jacob was changed when he saw his son. He finally put the pieces Together, and he was filled with sorrow. How will you feel on that day about this season in your life right now? Let me just ask you. We're going to go to prayer in just a minute, and I want you to consider this. How will you feel on that day about this season of your life right now? Are you walking in repentance and faith and trusting God? Or will you look back on this season of your life and say, I wasted it. It's lost to me now. In baptism, we are saying to ourselves and to the church and to God, here is my life. All I bring to the table today is the sin from which I need to be saved. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He has done it all. So I may only have one week or I may have a hundred years in front of me, but whatever it is, here I am. And I'm asking you, God, to take my life and make me one of your own. The reason that we share baptisms publicly, by the way, is so that the whole church, when it's gathered together, would remember our own baptism, would remember our own commitments to the Lord, and that together we would say again, God, here I am again, just as I was at my baptism. And you are still keeping me. You are still doing it all. And I am asking you again to help me be who you've called me to be. Help me to live for your glory. And 
just in light of what we've read today. Baptism is is an opportunity for us to, to commit again to live, live, live in light of that day. As you imagine that moment when you will see the Lord face to face, are there specific things you know right now are important to you that will not matter on that day? Are there any specific ways that you are walking in unbelief that you need to confess right now? I'm gonna invite you, wherever you are, if you're watching online as well, would you just bow your heads with me? Even you, Maybe you haven't prayed in like 15 years. Okay, Just bow your head with me. And I want you to answer those questions before the Lord this morning as we prepare for baptism. God in heaven, would you receive these prayers and hear us, God, and help us in Jesus' name. Amen. If this is your first time with us celebrating a baptism, maybe you don't know what to expect this morning. We just have one person being baptized in this service. Jessica's going to be in the, in the pool in just a minute. When she comes out, The way we do it here at Faith Community Church is we stand, we cheer, we clap for a lot of reasons. First of all, Scripture says this is what's happening in heaven whenever one person says yes to Jesus. So we're joining with the church in heaven right now. The other is just to remember the mercy and the kindness and the goodness of God in our own lives and to give thanks and to say to Jessica, we are cheering you on and we are with you And we cannot wait to see what God is going to do in your life. Okay, everybody clear on your instructions. Since we only have one baptism, after you stand, you can just stay stay standing and we'll keep singing, okay? Everybody got it? Say, I got it. All right, let's do it.